Hi, everyone, and welcome to culturalfront.ua. I'm your host for today, Isabel Davidson, and I'm joined by Dr. Florian Gassner, who's a professor in the Central, Eastern, and Northern European Studies Department. His work focuses on cultural history in Central and Eastern Europe. And before joining UBC, he taught at the Donetsk National University. Hi, thanks for having me. Oh, thank you for joining us today. Um, my first question to start off is, how did you end up teaching at Donetsk National University? I had just uh, finished my studies at UBC at the time, actually. I was just on a job in Romania at the time. And there is a German government program that sends out university teachers all across the world. And I've had an interest in the area for a long time, was looking at most interesting postings. The language I had learned was Russian. And I was looking at postings in uh, Russia, also in Kazakhstan. But then I saw some openings in Ukraine. I saw that Eastern Ukraine was an option. I knew with my Russian, I could uh, get a foothold there and applied. They accepted me. And then uh, six months later, I was standing at the airport in Donetsk and was being picked up by the dean of the faculty. Oh, nice. Um, can I ask uh, what made Eastern Europe and specifically Ukraine the most appealing to you for that? It just evolved over uh, probably a decade, even being a young person, because I come from an area of southern Germany where since World War II, you've had multiple waves of immigrants and displaced people from Central and Eastern Europe, some of them being Germans that uh, relocated or were forced to locate to Germany at the end of World War II. But you also had then uh, late immigrants from Poland, from Ukraine, from the former Soviet Union, uh, whom I met at school, who I met at university. So it's always been a part of my environment. It's always been part of my life. And from that just grew organically the interest in the area. I eventually decided to learn one of the languages, made it a centerpiece of my studies. And then when the opportunity came, I was very happy to work there for a while. Oh, nice. Um, could you tell us a little bit about what life was like while you were living in Ukraine? It was a nice pace. I uh, immensely enjoyed uh, living there at the time. It was, as far as the history of Ukraine is concerned, a it was a shift because you still had, especially in eastern Ukraine and Donetsk, which is uh, compared to western Ukraine, uh, was still less developed. You still had a large percentage of the population living in very low income brackets, selling you know, produce from their backyards on the street to neighbors and passersby. But at the same time, in the city center, you had high-end real estate. You had a Bang & Olufsen store. You had high-end hi-fi electric equipment to buy. So there were these two worlds that you had the old Ukraine, the remnants of uh, Soviet influence there. But you also had uh, the new Ukraine with tech jobs, with international companies coming there. Uh, Bosch was there. Siemens was there. And so it was really fascinating to see uh, the society there at this inflection point. Uh, so while you were in Ukraine, um, I know you taught in Donetsk, but did you end up traveling to any other part of Ukraine while you were there? Not really. Ironically, I actually don't enjoy traveling a lot. I just was part of uh, two excursions into the area around Donetsk. So I was 
standing uh, in the steppe looking out at a, a ecological reserve, I guess I would, we would call it. But apart from that, I would just uh, stick to Donetsk and every weekend uh, explore more parts of the city on foot. Oh, nice. Um, if you did go back to Ukraine, is there any other part of Ukraine that you would like to visit? I would probably be motivated to visit Chernovitz, Chernovtsi in the southwest, simply because it's uh, in German cultural history, which is one of my foci. It's such an important uh, city with a lot of uh, significant authors having been born there or lived there or worked there. But also there is again, a distinct uh, part of Ukrainian heritage to be seen there. So that would be something that would really attract me. Oh, nice. Um, In terms of like when you were living there, did your experience kind of challenge any assumptions that you had about Ukraine or assumptions that you've heard other people have about Ukraine? The thing that changed my appreciation of Ukraine right quick when I arrived there was how much the cultural diversity actually is real there. Because coming from the outside, it's already considered an achievement to distinguish between uh, you know, Russians and Ukrainians, and maybe you know some nuances within the Ukrainian population. But just how quickly I found that I was surrounded by people with German heritage or uh, Roma heritage or Jewish heritage, Uh, I met people with Tatar heritage. So just how diverse the population it is and how people are aware of this diversity, uh, that was something I found uh, beautiful and very inspiring right away. Yeah, that's definitely something that like us at USU want to dive into a little bit more next year because we've definitely noticed that not everyone realizes how diverse Ukraine is. And I I know from like my personal background, my, my family's part Roma, I I would definitely love to, like, have people know those, like, small communities that are in Ukraine but are still very important to its cultural space. And also knowing that helps so much reframing the conversations people have in North America about uh, Russia's ongoing war on Ukraine because this idea that it's, you know, Russians fighting Ukrainians, how problem... uh, Russians fighting Ukrainians, and then there's what is ethnic Russians, what is ethnic Ukrainians. Uh, That's just such a 19th century understanding of the issue. You need to arrive at a point where you realize that Ukraine is a civic entity guided by civic nationalism, and that historically, for centuries, it's been a multicultural environment, and that this has been the reality there for hundreds of years, and you can still see it in Canada, because in Canada, for example, you have A lot of the Mennonites that came from uh, Ukraine that uh, migrated here eventually or uh, Germans that used to live there that also then emigrated to Canada later on. And the more people are aware of that, the more uh, they will better understand what's at stake when you defend Ukraine against Russian aggression. Yeah, I know for sure. I think like something that you touched on that was really important is like the Crimean Tartars because I know a bunch of people on campus who've never heard about them before, and yet the area that they come from plays such an important role in what's going on in Ukraine right now. And it also just tells a story of how Ukraine evolved uh, territorial and demographically because everybody says, well, you know, at least Crimea is a 
quote-unquote Russian part of Ukraine and, you know, the Russians should be able to keep at least that. And then you have to explain to them, no, Crimea is actually uh, the paramount example for Russian imperialism and colonialism and displacement of peoples and that this is a century-old tradition which, as you say, people in well outside of that hemisphere are just completely unaware of. And, you know, until... Uh, Crimean Tatars are reinstated in their, you know, civil and human rights on the Crimean Peninsula. Uh, we shouldn't really move the conversation forward in any way. Uh, speaking of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, I was wondering if you could tell us how you've been feeling in relation to the war as somebody who has lived in Ukraine. The first couple of weeks... I always describe it as feeling wired because it was just about absorbing as much information as possible, understanding what's going on. And it was the news were moving so fast at the time and me and my colleagues and my friends, uh, it like it's not right to say it was shock or that we were uh, in a state of whatever, but it was just... We were all absolutely wired because it was just so tough to keep up and to explain to people what is going on. So we had to learn on the fly and then pass it on to media and students and so forth. And after that, uh, the longer it went, just a, a deep sadness because we all have friends, sometimes close friends, uh, with whom we then talk sometimes regularly, sometimes they fall off of the map for a month or two. And uh, just trying to imagine or to conceive what our friends are going through is impossible. And um, it just leaves us saddened, devastated, and hoping that for them eventually, uh, there'll be a light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah, I know... Um... Donetsk has been one of the regions of Ukraine that has been heavily impacted by the war. They are occupied right now. Um, have you been able to hear from any of the people you still know that live in Donetsk? Or has it been kind of MIA for the last year? Well, when uh, the Russian invasion began in 2014, basically none of my friends stayed in Donetsk. So nobody's there anymore, which is often something also you need to consider from an outside perspective when people say, oh, we should just have a referendum in eastern Ukraine about where they want to be. Most people or a big chunk of the people who used to live there are no longer there because they are displaced people now. And uh, a few relocated to territory of the Russian Federation or Russian-held territory, often due to family ties. Uh, or employment opportunities, the majority moved on to Kiev or to Vinitsa, where the university moved. And I've been in contact with them regularly, but uh, after February 2022, there was just a blackout period where for a month, everybody had disappeared. So on February 23rd, for example, I was on the phone with a friend of mine who had been working for the OSC Observer Mission on the front line in the Donbass region. And uh, she was, while she was packing, talking to me about they don't think anything's going to happen, as most people at the time were. And then she was just off the radar for a month. 
and we didn't know what happened. And eventually she reemerged and she was in one place and then she reemerged again in another place. And then suddenly we had people from all over chipping in and saying, oh, they can live here or they can live there or can we get them to Romania? And in the past three or four months, things for them have stabilized, if you can use that term. So their their lives are not stable, but you can reach them regularly. And I have uh, jour fixes with three of them. So every week I have a check-in and I get different perspectives. And for them too, it's you can see that the first three or four months they were running on adrenaline and they were uh, just moving forward and now just an immensely deep sadness has set in with them and uh, they usually want to talk about everything but the war and when they start talking about the war it is just devastating to see what it has done to them, their families and to their state of mind. And no, I I can imagine it's really hard to hear your friends go through that experience. I know for me, I have a bunch of friends who've had to leave Ukraine and still have family there. And it's really heartbreaking to hear those stories. And I think it's really important that people on UBC campus, as well as people off campus, hear these stories because not having that connection, it might make them not realize how traumatic this is for Ukrainians right now. And at the same time, that makes it so important what you and other groups in Canada and across the world are doing, because at the same time, you don't want just want to like drag a traumatized person in front of the camera and say, tell us your story so we can be sad with you. But it's you know important to have somebody who mediates the stories, who picks them up and then responsibly crafts them and carries them forward. Uh, just so you don't make it even harder, even worse for the people who are living under all this suffering right now. Yeah, no, I I know a lot of my friends and the execs of USU who are from Ukraine. They've been asked several times to share their stories about Ukraine. And after a while, it just gets really tiring of having to restate your trauma over and over again for different people. So I think it is important that organizations like USU and other Ukrainian groups across the country exist. So there's some sort of filter. So the people who have been traumatized don't have to like directly speak to other groups. And you have to say that uh, Canada has been, or the Canadian organizations have been quite exemplary in that too. Uh, run their fundraising uh, operations on just the goodwill of people reaching out, having you know, professionals address the communities rather than uh, you know, relying on traumatized people to you know, share their devastating experiences. Yeah, it's it's been amazing seeing how people have rallied around the Ukrainian community, even if they aren't Ukrainian necessarily. Like, We had a fundraiser over the summer of 2022, and we had this silent auction, and there were so many local Vancouver companies that gave us things like free rafting lessons and a gift card for a dinner at a really fancy steakhouse and that kind of stuff. And it it was really great to see that the support is there for the Ukrainian community. 
And people sometimes say it just has to do with the amount of Ukrainians that live in Canada. But you have to consider in B.C. that density is actually not that high. And nevertheless, like I was in a neighborhood where just some people on the street were selling Ukrainian-themed swag. And it turns out it's the guy who runs the gym across the street who has no connection to Ukraine whatsoever. He just thought it would be nice to help. And if he finds uh, Ukrainians who are refugees, he offers them free training uh, at his gym or just some exercise routines. Uh, or I was on a bike trip up the Sunshine Coast and there was all this handmade Ukrainian art in the area. So it's, uh, it was immensely inspiring at every time to see how much the support comes from Canada. Yeah, no, there there definitely aren't that many British Colombian Ukrainians. Um, I know we're helping this um, global, not global, national organization of Ukrainian student groups. It's called SUSC um, with a conference this year. And we are having so much trouble trying to find Ukrainian related things for them to do here because last year they had their conference in Edmonton. And if you know anything about Alberta and Edmonton in particular, it is filled with Ukrainians. So <laughs> they had no issues last year, but this year it's definitely been like, where the hell are we going to go for this? I recently, for the first time ever, went into a place that I've been seeing for 10 years, but you'd have to go to Port Moody. It's a place called Taste of Ukraine that sells all the authentic uh, Ukrainian sweets, including the single wrapped candies. And two doors down, there is a hipster coffee shop, which is, I believe, run by uh, recent arrivals from Ukraine, a bunch of young people, uh, cool people. So I forget the name of the coffee place, but it's two doors down from Taste of Ukraine. So anybody who wants Ukrainian-themed stuff, uh, take the Evergreen Extension to Port Moody and enjoy your time there. Yeah, I think the only thing that I've heard Ukrainians talk about in terms of Ukrainian culture in Vancouver is the restaurant Kozak. I think they have three locations now in like mainland Vancouver. Um, but now that we've kind of gotten into Canadian Ukrainian stuff, um, could you tell our listeners a little bit about the project that you're working on? Well, that's the uh, the project with the very elegant name uh, Canadian Monuments to Central and Eastern European History. And the idea is to create, first of all, a database, but eventually a digital exhibition collecting every monument, every statue, possibly every commemorative plaque that recalls not just the history of something that happened in Eastern Europe, but Included in these statues is typically also the history of migration from those territories to Canada, and then to reflect also on the settlement history and how these communities eventually integrated into what eventually became Canada. Oh, that's really interesting. I I know I know about this since I'm taking the class, but could you tell our listeners a little bit about the class that coincides with this project? It's basically a uh, panorama for students at UBC to learn about Canada by way of these monuments. And we start with things that you know young people know about. So there's uh, monuments dedicated to uh, the Holocaust, monuments dedicated to the victims of communism. And after a long stretch, we spent looking at monuments dedicated to Canadian-Ukrainian history. And 
in the end, then we're looking at parts of Canadian history that are possibly not as familiar to everybody. So the history of the Mennonites, of Armenian uh, immigration to Canada, Hungarian immigration to Canada, uh, the Dukabors is something we're discussing. So the idea is that you get reacquainted with Canada, but looking at it more from uh, the perspective of the settlers that arrived here in the 19th and 20th century. Yeah, I, I know I've really enjoyed this class. I love... Well, thank you kindly. Well, yeah, no, I mean, it, it's such an interesting class and it's a topic that I haven't had the opportunity to learn much about, even when I was in uh, secondary school. Uh, I'm sure a lot of other Canadian kids and people who are new to Canada probably don't know that much about it. So if anyone listening is in the market for classes next year, you should definitely check out this class. I appreciate the plug. <laughs> oh, of course. It, it, honestly, it's such a great class. I'm not even saying it because you're a guest. I really <laughs> enjoy this class. Well, thank you very much. Yeah. Um, how hard has the process of collecting this information been for you? It's It's ups and downs because sometimes there are outstanding resources. So for example, the Armenian Canadian community, they actually have a website where they don't just feature all the monuments, but they have pictures there. They explain who the artist was. But then there's other institutions where sometimes there's nobody to speak to and there's no information available. And like sometimes even the organizations themselves don't know. So I've been in contact with the Dukabor Discovery Center, and they have one monument on their grounds, and the person running the office for the Dukabor Discovery Center has asked everybody, including the descendant of one of the leading figures of the Dukabors when they migrated here, but nobody has been able to give us a straight answer because... In many cases, these monuments are not central to Canada's narratives, so they're put there by community members, by uh, people from more marginalized cultural environments, and then you have to start digging, and that can take a while. And for one of these monuments, we've been looking for a year, and we still don't know. Oh, that's crazy. definitely shows that what you're doing is pretty important work because all these monuments definitely deserve to be studied in some form or fashion. Would the Dukabors be the group that you found the most challenging to find information about, or are there other groups that have been really tricky? The Mennonites are very tricky because they're not very big on advertising. Mm. And apart from some settlements like the town of Steinbach, uh, where you have you know, a Mennonite discovery center, uh, like the there's a monument commemorating their first landing in central Canada, and it's just like a wooden board with a carving in the middle of nowhere, which you can only give the address for by giving the geolocation because there's like no road sign there. So with the Mennonites, for example, it's difficult because yeah, they don't advertise and. Uh, it's not something that is a massive celebration in the middle of the town square, but often on the margins. Oh, that's really interesting. Uh, in terms of Ukrainian culture, I know obviously Canada has one of the biggest diasporas of Ukrainians in the world. Has that been an easy process for you or has it also been somewhat challenging? It's a challenging process in that we keep finding more stuff. 
like in and in some instances the question is how big do we want the database to get because for example there was during world war 1 and even after world war 1 the internment operations where uh canadian ukrainians were uh well interned in camps for the duration of the war and at this point i think there's over 100 plaques and so the question is how detailed do you represent that but then there's also just obscure things that nobody had on uh on their map for example i was talking to uh the person running the office of the dukobor center and i was talking to him, i think it was about lesia ukrainka so the uh, ukrainian poet and he said oh i think there's a statue of her somewhere in saskatchewan to which i said that must be incorrect because i should know that but eventually it turned out that yeah he just completely by chance came across the statue we had found nowhere so far and immediately put it into the database and once you've once you know of the thing it's really easy then to find some supporting material but at the end of the day the big challenge for the project will be eventually to like travel to the locations and speak to the local community and collect the programs that they distributed on the day that they inaugurated the monument and so forth and so forth so in that regard we're still at the very beginning of the process Oh, that's really cool to hear. I'm glad that there's so many Ukrainian monuments across Canada. Um, while you've been doing this research, is there a specific type of monument that's popped up the most, like monuments towards internment or Holodomor? Internment, there are not that many monuments per se. Most of them are just plaques. The most dominant monument would be statues commemorating the Holodomor. And uh, just numerically, the most frequent would be a copy of the Bitter uh, Tears of Childhood that you can find in Kiev in the original. And apart from that, you have a bunch of monuments and institutions commemorating uh, Ukrainian cultural figures. There's a bunch of statues dedicated to Taras Shevchenko. There is, I think, three or four statues even to Lesya Ukrainka which I find fascinating because in Canada, I think she's basically an unknown figure. And at this point, though, I think many people outside of Ukraine are rediscovering her. I think in London it is that they are currently performing Cassandra in an English translation. So I do hope that especially Lesia Ukrainka becomes a much more prominent figure in the Western imagination when they think about uh, Ukraine. Yeah, I know recently a film called Mavka that's based off of uh, the Forest Song was released. It's an animated film. Um, I also heard that there's a museum dedicated to Tarasevchenko in Ontario. So that's pretty cool. Uh, when you've been researching all of these Ukrainian monuments, are there specific design features that pop up often? The thing that stands out to me is uh, they are they are mostly or a large part of them were inaugurated before the end of the Soviet Union, but also like in the years immediately after. And there is still that uh, national aesthetic. So these statues depict figures in a uh, realistic way if you want to if you want to describe it that way like you can recognize the person there is the idea of approximating what they looked in their lives to have them be there as idols of culture which is a perfectly fine way to uh, depict a person 
Uh, it's just a it's a very 19th century approach, artistically speaking. And uh, I wonder if going forward into the future, if there will be a little more boldness in the way that the communities present themselves. For, for example, um, we recently in class were discussing uh, the Armenian Genocide Monuments, which are all uh, fairly conventional also, but the one in Vancouver, actually, that was inaugurated in 2014, uh, they took a completely different approach by making it look like the fingerprint of a person who actually uh, was affected by the Armenian Genocide. And it just sets it off entirely from all the other monuments you, we have. So I'm looking forward to see what the Ukrainian-Canadian community does, does uh, especially after, as we hope, uh, they'll win the war right soon and uh, what sort of commemorative practices they introduce then. Would you say that the monuments that you've seen in Canada are similar to monuments that you saw while you were in Ukraine? I'd say yes. There is a very similar aesthetic, so a very uh, realist, sometimes monumentalist approach to things. And especially in the past couple of years, though, when uh, Holodomor commemoration became more central to the Ukrainian Canadian community, and they just literally copied the statue that is in Kiev to have that in uh, other major Canadian cities. So there is, I would not say directly a copying, but there's a dialogue between the traditions there uh, where it's, it's difficult to say at this point who is the vanguard and who's in the rear guard. And again, it'll be interesting to see what the next uh, one or two decades bring on that front. If there's going to be a big monument in Kiev that's going to be replicated here, or if maybe uh, Western modernist styles will uh, affect what in Ukraine is going to be set up after the war. Yeah, I think it's interesting to think about how what's going on right now with the invasion of Ukraine is going to be commemorated one day. It's it's always interesting to think about how history is happening right now as we sit here in this recording booth and how what's going on is going to be remembered for generations to come. And it'll be such a fascinating debate coming out of Ukraine also just because you have to consider that uh, the Ukrainian President Zelensky is at this point already a larger-than-life figure. Uh, when, as we hope, he comes successfully out of this war, I don't even know what he is going to do with himself because uh, I feel that he won't want to be president forever. But at the same time, does he just want to leave the post after the war is ended and hopefully Ukraine has won? And then the issue will be that there is such a high amount of respect and veneration for him. To be sure, there's even in Ukraine people also who are critical of him and who don't like him. But overwhelmingly, people have such a high opinion of him. And I'm curious, the conversations he will have trying to convince people not to put up statues of him everywhere. But then are they going to go for a new version, a modern version of the unknown soldier? Will there be a big tomb of the unknown soldier in uh, Maidan Square in Kiev, for example? Uh, or uh, is there going to be uh, 
something entirely different because that is a form of commemoration that still harkens back to the imperial past, to the Soviet past, the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, one of the prominent examples of commemoration of imperial wars. So as much as I'm much more excited about other things when we're looking at the war, this is also something I'm excited about to see uh, how will the negotiation will take afterwards, and what will the consensus be, and how will uh, this all, Peter, uh, how will this all translate into monumental and commemorative practices in the end? Yeah, I'm glad that you mentioned the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier because, obviously, since the war is ongoing, there haven't been many commemorative practices. But from what I've seen with the unissued diplomas um, exhibit that you helped us put up in Buchanan this year, as well as other commemorative practices that um, charities have been putting on in Ukraine. A lot of it is about showing the faces of the soldiers who are fighting the war currently and who have died fighting this war. So I wonder if, like, I feel like there's going to be some sort of shift about showing the real faces of the people who sacrificed their lives for Ukraine. And especially with this Ukrainian government and this president, which you have to consider he's still one of the youngest leaders uh, within the European context and a leader who understands the modern mediascape, understands how cultural practices unfold, who has a team of equally young and uh, educated and qualified people, including his wife, who was also you know, a collaborator in his a media empire who was a writer for that. And so we have all people who understand how this works and uh, chances are that they are going to you know, bring forward some of the most innovative ways to commemorate the sacrifices that you know uh, tens of thousands of young people have made over the course of you know, the past 18 months and then everything that's going to happen afterwards. Yeah, it'll be really interesting to see what the future holds in terms of commemoration. Um, going back to Canadian commemoration, is what province have you seen the most Ukrainian monuments in? The most Ukrainian monuments will be, they are, but almost by default will be in Ontario. Because on the one hand, you have uh, in part the largest Ukrainian community, Canadian community there, but also the best organized because they're organized around the big uh, urban centers. And it's also in Toronto that you have an endowed chair in Ukrainian studies held by Paul Robert Magochi, and you have some specialized presses there. But then shortly thereafter, you'll be looking at Alberta and Saskatchewan because you can also see there that uh, uh, the University of Alberta has a big Ukrainian studies program in, I think it's in Saskatoon. You have distinct publishing houses that are there to translate Ukrainian works into English. So that would be the, the ranking. You'd have Ontario, and then I think it would be Alberta and Saskatchewan followed after that. I'm surprised to hear that Ontario is so, like has so many of the monuments because from what I know and what most of my peers know... It's normally Alberta and Saskatchewan that are focused on as being the big places where there's a lot of Ukrainian diaspora. But it, at the end of the day, the diasporas also look entirely different because in Alberta, you have, you know, you you still have you know little villages that are almost predominantly Ukrainian, and then these villages are 
the Ukrainian majority there, and it's all these little specks all across uh, Alberta. But then if you go to Ontario, you will have just in Ottawa and in Toronto, uh, big, well-organized uh, Ukrainian community that also you know, has people who are in uh, financially advantageous positions who can then donate to these causes and then they can lobby the governments for space and uh, collect the money to put up the fancy designs. So uh, it also reflects this disparity of monumentalization, just reflects how the communities are organized and present in the different provinces. What is your favorite Ukrainian-Canadian monument that you've seen? I actually am partial to one of the monuments commemorating the Canadian internment. Uh, it's in St. Paul, Alberta, in a little bit in the middle of nowhere. They seem to have a strong Ukrainian-Canadian community there. And what I like about it is that it's it's a bit of a departure from the typical monuments you get, like the bronze cast statue of a person, be it Taras Shevchenko or Lesya Ukrainka or an unnamed interned person. But it's actually a, it looks like a poster cutout of uh, a historical picture of three internees. And it's like a three-dimensional picture posted two-dimensionally in the middle of a field. And then they are located behind uh, a couple of rows of barbed wire. And it's, as far as monumental practices in Canada go, it's unusual. It catches your attention. It is three-dimensional in that you there's a point to walking around it, and then you're on this side of the barbed wire and then that side of the barbed wire. And I think it was made by a, a local artist or even a community member simply also. So it's maybe not the greatest monument in the world, but I just like that somebody was experimenting, some was playing with it, and that it has a lot of space. This is why I'd probably say my second favorite one is uh, the Holodomor Monument in Regina, because I actually, I didn't know it existed at the time because it had just been set up two years before. And I was walking from the airport to the university in Regina for a simple reason, because I could, I decided I should do it. And then suddenly I saw this statue, that, like the little girl, which I knew from other contexts. And I spent half an hour there because the one in Toronto, for example, they put up a while ago is it's in a park, but it's in between roads and it's in an enclosed space and it can't really breathe. But in Regina, it's along the promenade, along the river uh, with plenty of space around it, with a vista behind it. So that the monument really, the forlornness of that uh, young girl really comes out. And I think they did a great job at choosing the environment there. So yeah, my first choice would be uh, the 21 Strands in St. Paul and then the Holodomor Monument in Regina, which I think they did a great job of situating that. Yeah, the 21 Strands one definitely stood out to me when we were talking about it in class, especially because we did examine all the ones. I forget the name of the artist that did a lot of the other ones. John Boxtill. Yeah, um, it definitely stood out to me since a lot of the other ones are made by John Boxtill. And I also like that um, I remember when I was doing the readings for that week in our class, I saw one of the pictures in one of the readings and I could point out the three men that are 
the cardboard cutout looking thing in the 21 strands picture. I didn't realize that was actually a, a copy from there, but yeah, but that's the that's the issue that it's just so much thought went into this. It's really just a little collage project a local person did, but so much thought went into it and it makes sense and it's something you can experience. So, yeah, I'm, I'm hoping that because Canada itself, they're Canada hasn't made a lot of great monuments, I find, and I hope they start embracing a bit more of the experimentation, a bit more of the spatial politics that come with interesting and intriguing practices of commemoration. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think space definitely has influenced my, like, preferences for the monuments that we've looked at in our class. I know um, when we were talking about the Holocaust monument here, a lot of us preferred the big one that's in Berlin because of the way that it plays with space and how it's a lot easier to kind of just like contemplate when it, there's a lot of space and there's a lot of importance put on the space. Which also makes it really difficult to imagine Vancouver ever developing a interesting commemorative culture just because real estate comes at such a price. You can't really set aside anything and For example, unbeknownst to me, there's actually a German square in Vancouver, which is interesting hmm. for me because I'm German, but it's really just some random intersection in the middle of nowhere, somewhere in a residential area, and I think they like put a globe in the ground, and this is now the German square. That's the extent of that, because you know, otherwise you just don't have the space available to do things. Yeah, I know taking your class has definitely allowed me to learn a lot more about how many monuments there are and like how commemoration works in Canada. I know we've talked about monuments from my home city of Calgary that I had never even heard of before because they're not widely talked about or promoted in any way. So it's definitely been a really interesting experience. And of course, the regard. most fascinating one from that point of view is that one of the most visible public monuments on campus that at least predates uh, the totem poles that have been put up over the past couple of years is the monument commemorating the wholesale immigration to Canada of a faculty of forestry from Hungary in 1957, which then led to, it basically propelled forestry studies at UBC forward so that much of what UBC forestry is today, the internationally recognized institution it is, harkens back to those Uh, 200 people from Hungary coming here in 1957. And most people who see the Chopron Gate at the end of Main Mall, just outside the Tim Hortons and Forestry, uh, I think most people think it's some kind of Japanese carving, but it's actually traditional Hungarian carving to commemorate uh, the resettlement and the education of the Chopron students and faculty at UBC. Yeah, I, I know I had no clue what the shop run gate was before taking your class as well as I took another class um, during last school year. It was the anthropology of monuments. And those are the only two times that I've ever heard anyone mention the shop run gate. And I know in our class this year is the first time I had heard that we had that statue of the goddess of liberty as well. So it's It's definitely opened my eyes to a lot of things off campus and on campus. The goddess, uh, the goddess of freedom. That was uh, when I first came to UBC. That was hidden away 
half underneath a staircase that led past the student union building, past the old aquatic center, was like nudged into a corner there. And I always wondered, is that political for political sensitivities? But now it's, but I think still people don't know that it's right outside between the life building and Brock Hall and on the path to, so if you walk from the life building to Brock Hall or Hillel House, it's right there and you have a plaque on the side. But I think the bulk of students has no idea what it's doing there and what it stands for. No, I I think you're right, especially with the construction that's going on there right now. I don't think anyone ever really notices it. But it's actually one of the nicest areas of campus to sit under the trees there and, you know, be young people and slacklining and playing with your hacky sack or whatever young people do these days. It it is a very nice area. I I see people... um, Doing like a tightrope between the trees there sometimes. Well, that's the slack line. Oh, I didn't know what they were called. (laughs) Um, So I think we're starting to run out of time. So I want to ask you one more question before we go. Um, What is your biggest hope for this project? Ideally, it'll become a big virtual exhibition online that you will find when you're Googling something. So you come across a statue and or a monument and you just like type into Google, I am standing here, what is this? And so that slowly it will draw circles and that uh, people who want to be more informed about the environment will have a very easy way to do that with good documentation, good pictures, good prose written. And we're kind of hopeful because... Uh, my assistant was so uh, in, ingenious to create little virtual maps for our internal purposes on Google Maps, not realizing that these maps will be publicly accessible. And so I think it was like a map of Ukrainian monuments. She suddenly called me and said, we have for some reason 450 hits on this map we created Uh, And even though she said, like, I've been there a few times, but not 450 times. So people are searching for these things and probably often coming up empty handed because uh, not a lot of resources are available. And so that's the idea that if you live in Canada and you want to learn about this particular part of Canada, you just look us up and you have enough information to satisfy your curiosity. Oh, that's really cool. I, I can't wait to see the project when it's all done, I'm sure. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Gassner. Thanks for having me. I've really enjoyed talking to you, and I'm sure our listeners have really enjoyed listening. Um, Thank you to our listeners for joining us once again, and we'll see you on the next episode. (laughs) 